previously on why they left. It all started with the story. A friend of mine named Shay told me a rumor about how there were some doctors living in a forest compound conducting experiments on kidnapped children right near where he grew up. Several years ago, I went out into this forest with Shay, and sure enough, we found an abandoned facility filled with medical records, medications, and toys and children's clothing. The mystery of that compound, what went on in it, and why it was abandoned, has haunted me ever since. I've started investigating this, and I know that a family once lived there. Charles McIntyre and Marilyn Lockman, a married couple who were both psychiatrists, and then Dieter and Anita Weiss and their daughter Abigail. Marilyn and Anita were sisters. The more I've investigated, the stranger the story has become. Charles and Marilyn were in a high-profile lawsuit in the early 2000s. I tracked down their old office manager, Tammy, and she told me that before the lawsuit, the FBI had raided their offices. Unfortunately, this lawsuit was only the beginning of Charles's legal trouble. I'm Josh Webb. This is Why They Left, and it's good to be back. So I told you before that I debated in high school. For me, that experience was an act of providence. It was exactly what I needed, a vessel to carry me through the choppy waters in my home life. Anyway, for my senior year, our debate topic was the United Nations. By that time, I'd realized that the key to winning in the conservative Christian homeschooled league I participated in was playing upon the fears that the judges had about how big and bad the government was. So my debate partner and I proposed a policy change designed to appeal to the bias held by these homeschool mothers who evaluated our debates. The change we came up with required presidential candidates to undergo a top-secret level security clearance investigation. This is a kind of background check. Anyone goes through it before they can access types of classified information that ordinary citizens don't have access to. And strangely, nowhere in statutory law does it require a presidential candidate or even the president-elect to undergo a security clearance investigation before or after they're elected. As you'd guess, that would be quite problematic because you could have a candidate elected who had serious security concerns or health problems that the public never got to know about. Every time we debated this topic, I always began my first speech the exact same way. <clears throat> All right, let's see if I've still got it. It went something like this. The recent NSA scandal taught us that the government knows an alarming amount about us, like who we call, or my obsession with NBC's reality TV show, The Bachelor. But what I find disturbing is how little we often know about our elected officials. And it seems that, despite our media's best efforts, that veil of secrecy hangs the thickest when it surrounds the most powerful person in the world, the President of the United States. Our case offers us an opportunity to do something about this. So how'd I do? Would you vote for me? <laughs> Anyway, I can't tell you whether our debate case was a good idea. Now that I'm older and more mature, I have it on pretty good authority that it was really a waste of time. But as I've investigated this story, I have thought a lot about that introduction that I gave so many times. Because I've realized that we know a very small amount about our physicians. Despite the fact that our doctors cut into our bodies, give us advice on end-of-life decisions, and take care of those who are impaired by psychiatric or intellectual or developmental challenges, our doctors are in some ways faceless. I mean, sure, you can Google someone and find some key information, like how many five-star reviews they have on Yelp, where they went to med school, maybe some past employers. If you're lucky, a bio and some academic citations that you're never gonna read through, but that's about it. You know what? I want you to do something for me. I need your help so that I can prove a point. This story is about to get interactive for just a minute. I want you to press pause on your phone or laptop in just a second and Google a name. The name is Charles McIntyre, which is spelled M-C-I-N-T-E-E-R. So just scan the first page of the search results and then come back and hit play when you're done. I'll wait. So what did you see? Unless you're using some browser besides Google, and I have no idea why you'd be doing that unless you're a contrarian, I'm guessing you noticed a few things. Probably you saw a court case that Charles was involved in with his wife and another one of our compounders, Marilyn. Maybe you saw a listing of him working as a psychiatrist in Albertville or Anniston. Maybe you even saw something about a census from the 1940s. What I'm hoping you noticed was a result that takes you to a long PDF document filled with legal jargon. 
I'm going to tell you all about that document here in a minute, but I want to give you the short version right now. Charles McIntyre's medical license was suspended and then voluntarily surrendered because of not one, but two separate incidences of sexual misconduct with his patients, among several other things that happened. Think about if you were looking for a physician and you decided not to Google them ahead of time. Or even for some reason, if you did Google them ahead of time, I'm guessing you probably wouldn't take the time to read through a lengthy legal transcript and that you definitely wouldn't bother trying to decode the various references it makes to laws and regulations that the doctor violated. I mean, even understanding what Dr. McIntyre was accused of took me several hours of research. It required cross-referencing one set of laws and two sets of regulatory rules from the Alabama Code, the Medical Licensure Commission's rules, and the rules of the Alabama Board of Medical Examiners. That's a mouthful. It's not like reading this PDF from a Google search even gives you an educated idea of exactly what this doctor was guilty of. When I first found that document and realized that Dr. McIntyre was really just Charles McIntyre, I knew I needed some extra firepower in understanding it. So I contacted an attorney friend of mine. You remember, all my friends are attorneys. And I asked this person to take a look. He was as enthusiastic as he is anytime I come calling with a favor. Yeah, sure. Can, be, can do it. I don't know. Yeah, it'll happen at some random hour. My friend did want to be kept anonymous, so I'm going to call him Saul in honor of my favorite TV attorney. Saul was not acting as my attorney or offering legal advice. Really, I just wanted his two cents. I figured that an attorney's two cents were worth more than mine when it comes to this sort of thing. I'm going to come back to Saul in a minute after he's finished reading the document. In the meantime, let me give you my layman's version of events. It started in 2005, and it involved two entities within the Alabama medical infrastructure. I spoke with a man named Wilson, who's the general counsel for the Alabama Department of Mental Health, and he described the two entities involved like this. First, there's the Board of Medical Examiners. So you can analogize the Board of Medical Examiners to the U.S. Attorney's Office and or the County DA. And then there's the Medical Licensure Commission. And the uh, Medical Licensure Commission functions as the court. The 2005 document that you may have seen in your Google search was called a consent order. It stipulated that Charles McIntyre's medical license was now on probation due to violations of the Alabama Code, the board's rules, and the licensure commission statutes. Now to tell you about what those three violations were, I'm gonna pass you back to Wilson, the general counsel. Well, if he occasionally comes boundary violations of the patient for prescribing, I would imagine that that means there was probably a a relationship with a patient that involved prescribing controlled substances to that patient. It's hard to say more than that about what happened in 2005 because the evidence is sealed by state law. Though Wilson did say this. If sex for drugs, um, you know, that's not, I can't say that, you know, but that's what that reads to me is that there was, that's probably how it originated or, or was uncovered. The gist of it is that McIntyre did not one but several things wrong and was only able to keep practicing in Alabama post-2005 if he met certain requirements. These included paying a $50,000 fine, mandatory therapy, regular reports to a physician monitoring coordinator, and that a female chaperone must be present during the physical examination of all female patients moving forward. By now, my anonymous lawyer friend, Saul, has had time to review the documents himself, so let's see what he thinks about it all. So, I have a couple of thoughts. The first thought was, I must be missing some context because the second thought was this looks bad, but I just don't know what I can say beyond what you've already said. I guess the missing context might be that Charles McIntyre is linked to a now abandoned compound in the middle of the woods filled to the brim with medical records and prescription drugs where stories abound of child exploitation. Anyway, I digress. Back to Saul. This seems like a fairly routine administrative slash licensing decision in that he screws up. And then he enters into a consent decree with the agency. And I mean, the fine, like the actual punishment that was initially levied seems like fairly substantial. I mean, he's put on probation. He has to pay 50 grand. He has like all of these stipulations. And then like, you know, not even, not even two months into this, they're like, also we need to double down and add like these other conditions, which is sort of common 
in like probation things where it looks like it's not going so hot like sometimes like if you have like sex offenders you might have like some sort of probationary terms and then like two months in you might ask the court like hey can we actually up the ante because you know already signs are not looking good so i mean that means that he probably there was something that raised a red flag i would assume between march and may it's tough to say what it was what he said there is significant okay so the consent order took place in march 2005 by may of that same year the medical licensure commission issued what's called a supplemental order Think of this as the commission beefing up the requirements imposed on McIntyre by that original consent order. This supplemental order said that if McIntyre conducted physical exams at any facility with any patient, he had to furnish the facility with a copy of the original punishment document and that he must list the name, number, and address of the chaperone present for all exams of female patients. So the commission essentially doubled down on the accountability they imposed on McIntyre whenever he was physically involved with a patient in any way. I asked my friend if he had any guesses about why this supplemental order was put in place so soon after the original decision. He could only speculate, but he did say this. It's likely to me that there was some intervening event between March 23rd, when they enter the consent order, and May 2nd, 2005, when they supplement the terms of the probation i think i would bet a lot of money that rather whoever was in charge of like overseeing his probation something happened that made them think that they needed tighter tighter restraints so now we fast forward to january of 2007 it's good news for mckins here he received his license back presumably because he complied with the terms of his probation so there's obviously a hearing and he gets his license back but it's like two years or a year and a half later, I guess. There's no like term limit on the probation. So I would kind of expect it to not be indefinite, but like to be like whenever they felt like, like that he, I would expect that he would have to motion to like get his license back because there's no sunset on the, like formal sunset on probation. And that's what he did. And they thought he was legit. I know that journalists are supposed to be impartial, but I'm not officially a journalist. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to be a bit partial. It confuses me that McKinster's probation terms were effectively revoked in 2007, as if a little less than two years of good behavior means that he was back on the straight and narrow. I'm speculating here too, but Dr. McKinster did provide specialized care for elderly psychiatric patients. This fact, combined with the sexual misconduct charge, does not paint a pretty picture for me. Does it scare you that you could have been one of Dr. McIntyre's patients, even while he was on probation for various offenses? Does it scare you that you could have visited a similar physician with a similar or even worse background and not known about it? Does it scare you that you could be seeing a physician right now with a medically criminal history? Because it scares me. In the state's defense, my friend Saul did point this out. Nothing from here like makes me think something was mismanaged. It was just a guy who couldn't stop breaking the law. Unfortunately, whether the state handled things well or not, according to the medical board's general counsel, McIntyre lasted barely a year before he ended up surrendering his license permanently. So, yeah, he got his license back and did not make it a year before he... (laughs) No, he made it a full year and then another complaint came in and based on that investigation, he surrendered his license. The final part of that document I had to try and find is a voluntary surrender. In essence, it says that McIntyre is giving up his license because he was under investigation for another allegation of sexual misconduct. I asked Wilson at the general counsel's office about why a physician might do this, surrender their license before the commission even reached a decision about whether to punish them. My impression is that physicians who surrender their license before the fact-finding is completed are usually trying to avoid it or not get a situation where you got the medical board making, you know, making a decision or issuing, finding the facts that then can be used in a civil lawsuit or in a criminal case. Putting this in a different context, what McIntyre did was the equivalent of a corporation paying out a settlement because they knew that going to trial and having the facts come out would heavily damage their reputation. Surrendering a license in Alabama is also especially significant. If you surrender while under investigation, after five years, your license cannot be reinstated. It's gone, dead, you know, 
can't get it back. So it would be kind of impossible for him to be licensed to Alabama again. So let's think about this. This means that McIntyre, who spent years and years, thousands of hours to become a doctor, effectively threw all of that work away, in the process lost his source of livelihood without any kind of fight. I don't know what took place between McIntyre and this second patient. I just know that it led to this second sexual misconduct allegation. I can only imagine how bad the truth could be if he decided that his best move was to quit being a doctor forever rather than try his chances in court. From my research, July 2008 was the last time that Dr. McIntyre held a medical license in Alabama. Now, if you're the note-taking sort, I want you to write that down. July 2008, last time McIntyre lost his license. I want you to remember it because it's going to become important later. Before I get to why, I do want to take a step back and put all of this in context. Explain why it was so important to walk through this document. At the end of the last chapter, I mentioned that I've at times wrestled with whether anyone connected to the compound, the family as I call them, Charles and Marilyn, and then Anita and Dieter, actually did anything wrong. I've wondered whether maybe I just stumbled upon a big, confused misunderstanding out in those woods. This new information about Charles made it more likely, to me at least, that there was something suspicious going on in that forest, not less. A big part of why I view this legal history of Charles as damning for the forest compound is because of the timing. I haven't mentioned him to you in a while, but a former friend of mine, J.R. Leslie, played a key role in the initial part of investigating the story. One thing he was a bit of a savant at, thanks to some of his past job experience, was property research. According to property deeds that he found, Dieter Weiss, the brother-in-law of Charles, purchased the land the compound sits on in March of 2005. That just so happens to be the same month and same year that McIntyre was put on probation the first time. Now call it a coincidence if you want, but make sure you're paying attention to this next part and then you tell me whether you think it was a coincidence, okay? Earlier I asked you to focus on McIntyre surrendering his license permanently in 2008. Four years before that, in 2004, something else significant happened in the lives of Charles and Marilyn, Dieter and Anita. The family founded a company called Anita's Homes, LLC. Anita was careful to do the filing documentation herself, only tangentially mentioning Charles and Marilyn as quote-unquote initial members. I know all of this because I found a copy of the filing documents out in those woods. You know, I had a conversation with another friend of mine today. He's been working behind the scenes during my investigation. He has access to a very powerful version of a background report. Something so powerful that it makes the old 10 bucks a month website I previously used look like a toy. His background report is more like a weapon. It can tell you the entire history of where someone's lived. It can tell you who they've lived with and who they're living with currently. It can list out all of the phone numbers that they've ever had, all of the email addresses that they've ever had, all of the counties they've been registered in to vote. So I was telling this friend about someone I was hoping to find, a former employee of Anita's Homes. I told him that I had a copy of this employee's driver's license and a copy of her social security number. Mouth hanging agape in shock, my friend asked me where on earth I had gotten either of those documents. I told him what I just told you. It's all out there in the woods. I haven't talked about the documents we found at the compound in quite a while because at this point I take them for granted, but the truth is there are thousands of social security numbers and treatment plans and dates of birth out there rotting right now. I'm no expert on HIPAA, but there are probably over a thousand individual HIPAA violations within those records. When I think about the secret sitting out in that forest in Hayden, I think of a quote that Shay sent me once. He and I still communicate sporadically. We're both sporadic people. But his texts often feel like they should be framed and hung in a museum somewhere, or pasted onto one of those photos that old people share on Facebook with a sunset or a beautiful forest as the backdrop. This text was a quote from H.M. Stanley's journal across Africa in 1887. You'll have to ask Shay who that is, or how he encountered the quote. Awe of the forest rushed upon the soul and filled the mind. The voice sounded with rolling echoes as in a cathedral. One became conscious of its eerie strangeness, the absence of sunshine, its subdued light, and marveled at the queer feeling of loneliness, while inquiringly looking around to be assured that this loneliness was no delusion. It was as if one stood amid the inhabitants of another world. 
That quote sums up how I feel when I stand in those forgotten buildings of the compound, trying to piece together the nature of a company founded in 2004 called Anita's Homes. Maybe you feel it a little bit now too. Maybe now all the factual information that comes next will emotionally resonate with you in the same way that it does with me. Anita's Homes LLC was a company that ran group homes. The focus of all the company's facilities was residential care for developmentally disabled adults. By all appearances, these homes were legitimate. I found a copy of their Bill of Rights, even the synopsis document which advertised the homes. I'm about to read that advert, but I do want to warn you that it uses an outdated term for people with mental disabilities. Quote, Anita's Homes is a family-oriented home for people with mental retardation. Anita's Homes is state-certified and contracts directly with the state of Alabama to provide residential services to people with mental retardation. It goes on to talk about how the homes have two medical doctors, Charles and Marilyn, on call 24 hours a day. So this means the two doctors, who were already in trouble with the law for supposedly exploiting their patients, were now responsible for taking care of adults with mental disabilities. And soon after Charles and Marilyn started working at Anita's Homes, Charles would end up in even more legal trouble, eventually losing his license because of it. It's like the same things keep coming up in this story. I think some authors or journalists have to create themes and put them into their works, but I don't have to create any themes in this story, they're just there. In this case, it's particularly vulnerable people being placed in the care of especially questionable doctors. Because as a reminder, these group homes were created after the initial allegations from Patrick Atkins in 2003, and after the testimony of their own office manager, Tammy. And this all happened right before Charles first went on probation for sexual misconduct and improper prescribing. From the information I found, it looks like Anita's homes had three facilities. Two were located in Albertville, and the third was placed in Huntsville. Conspicuously absent was the address of the compound, 420 Watson Road in Hayden. So if the compound ever was a group home at one time, it looks like it was not connected to Anita's homes. The residences seemed like they were fairly small. The Huntsville home was actually just a set of apartments at an apartment complex. The paper trail for the homes of Anita's homes gets so detailed that it really isn't worth trying to go over every piece of information. I will try to sum it up for you, though. I found a listing which said that there were about 20 employees working in a single home. I also found payroll documents, mileage reimbursement forms, even the daily schedule used at one facility. Activities varied ranging from toileting schedule to anger management classes, arts and crafts, exercise, and communication training sessions. There were also copies of paperwork received from the state of Alabama's Department of Mental Health. Some of these forms were innocuous, mentioning that the home reviewed was clean, the staff friendly and cooperative. Clients had gone to see a St. Patrick parade earlier. A new driveway had just been paved. But there were also portents from the state indicating that all was not well at Anita's homes. Anita sent out a mass email reminding the staff firmly that all internal investigations are confidential. I can't tell you exactly what those investigations entailed. I can tell you that there was an accounting audit due in June of 2007 that had not been provided to the state by the end of July. Past this, I was really left wanting. The compound was simultaneously replete with some types of documentation and woefully empty with regard to other types, like documents outlining the operations of these homes. Perhaps there was more to find at the compound many years ago. Yet that familiar adversary, time, continues obfuscating the trail, leaving the clues cold and the leads sparse. I knew I needed some more context for the operation of Anita's homes. It seemed like tracking down some former employees was the best way to get that context. Earlier, I mentioned that friend to you, the one with access to a supremely powerful background report system. He fed some of the names I found into his system, and it spat out all the information I could ever possibly need to locate these ex-employees. The first person I spoke with is named Paulette. The first telephone number I tried happened to be the one she still uses. Unfortunately, it became clear very quickly that Paulette had worked at Anita's homes part-time and short-term. I just wanted to work part-time. But the job, you know, needed a full-time person, and I, I wasn't willing to work full-time, so I decided to to quit so they would get somebody that would work full-time. Like with Tammy, the old office manager for Charles and Marilyn's Yap Psychiatric Company, Paulette thought highly of Marilyn and seemed to think she genuinely wanted the best for the people in her care. Dr. Lockman was a very caring, seemingly doctor, you know, that wanted to help people. So I think it was a good program 
Beyond Marilyn, her impression of Anita's homes overall was positive. Dr. Logman and uh, her sister Anita were two wonderful people, I think, and they had a lot of caring about folks. I think Dr. Lockman's husband, Dr. McIntyre, he was, he was real good, too. Past these general recollections, Paulette's usefulness was pretty limited. She, too, has not escaped the ravaging force of time or how it's affected her memory. It's been so long. Time gets away, and I'm 78 years old soon, so my memory's not as good as it used to be. <laughs> there was one thing that stuck out to me in my conversation with Paulette, though, and it's ironically something that she did not know about. If you don't mind my asking, one, one reason I was looking into that company is there was actually a, a fairly prominent lawsuit that involved um, Dr. Oh, I didn't know that. Now, you might not be surprised about this. If I was a doctor, it's not like I'd go around advertising on a T-shirt that I'd been sued and accused of some pretty heinous things. But this did make me wonder whether moving into a cottage industry of residential care, operated by Anita and doctored by Charles and Marilyn, was a way for the two to continue practicing medicine after this big lawsuit without the need for anyone to hire them. After my phone call with Paulette, I went back through the paperwork and found a few things that made me doubt her memory even more. For one, apparently Paulette took a six-week leave of absence with almost no notice ahead of time. Puzzling behavior since she said herself that she only worked there part-time and short-term. Another thing I found was a document which noted that she had a scheduled meeting with an oversight official from the state and that she never showed up with no explanation. Feeling more confused than I was before I talked to Paulette, the next person I contacted was involved in the financial side of Anita's homes. I'm going to refer to him as Mark, since he wanted to be kept anonymous. Hello? This same? Yes. Like with Paulette, I'll start with the bad news first. Fortunately, I was extremely isolated from, from what they were doing. Unlike Paulette, though, they were charged with a Medicare, Medicaid um, fraud, basically, and it resulted in an FBI raid of one of their offices and documents being seized. Right, and I know that... that that, that happened. Uh... It became clear to me early on while talking to Mark that he had taken a personal interest in the goings-on of Charles and Marilyn and Dieter and Anita. I, I, I mean, I knew Anita because Anita was very involved. Maybe Dr. Lockman would use her as her office manager or, or, or something, and so kept her involved. I knew they moved, and I was aware they had moved to Blunt County I have not been involved with them probably since about 2008. You know, I know uh, Anita used to, to quote, help with billing, but I don't know why that would, I mean, <laughs> it's it's not logical, but, uh, but there was a lot that was not logical, okay? Some of what he said here helped explain, in my mind, why the family might have chosen to move out to the compound to begin with. Dr. Lockman, just in the way she may be, would would use Anita or in, involve Anita or just her concepts. I, I mean, I know she was a huge hoarder, huge hoarder. Uh, I mean, I had had, had had gone to their house at, at one point in time in Homewood, and there were just tons and tons of clothes and goods and all kinds of things that had been bought, never been used, never ever been used, but just purchased. And it was just that kind of just kind of off the grid personality. Unfortunately, Mark didn't know anything about the compound itself. That's after my time. I knew they had moved there. You know, I would probably say that's more through the grapevine of just, just knowing some mutual people. I told him a little bit about what I found at the compound, though I kept some of the cards close to my chest. I mentioned the medical records and the medications. He was as puzzled and disturbed about this as I think all of us are. Oh, wow. I mean, it... it... It, it garners some some interesting questions just with records being here. Uh, I mean, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't begin to tell you why, but that, that doesn't make sense. Besides Mark and Paulette, the other employees I tried to track down were mostly dead ends. Many of them were deceased. Others were unreachable with disconnected phone numbers, old or out-of-state addresses, and unmonitored email inboxes. I don't know about you, but I personally don't know too much about the average group home, like how it works, who it serves, what typical state oversight looks like, etc. So I contacted yet another friend of mine. Thank goodness I have so many helpful people in my life. This other friend has worked as a caseworker for over a dozen group homes. 
In order to speak freely about what he knows and what he's seen, I've adjusted his voice and changed his name so that he's completely unrecognizable. And for our purposes, I'm going to call him Elliot. I do need to make a few disclaimers before I get into our conversation. First, this is just one person's personal experience. Second, Elliot has only worked in one state and definitely hasn't worked with even half of the total group homes in that state. Mileage may vary, both state to state and home to home, with regard to the quality of care. Despite these caveats, our conversation was enlightening to me because it helped me realize just how vulnerable the group home system is to exploitation and abuse. I want to start with some general information, like what a case manager does, since that's Elliot's profession. So I'm a service coordinator for people with developmental disabilities. Um, I write their annual plans. I help them identify goals they want for their services. I facilitate meetings with their care team. Um, I help them with applying for government-funded programs. If they need different resources, I'll research that for them. Um, but a lot of my job is initiating referrals for them for services. Elliot also explained what a group home is. A group home on the outside might look like any other home. It is owned and managed by a nonprofit provider um, or an individual with a company, and it's not an involuntary institution. Those are illegal in the states now in almost every situation. The residents are all unrelated, um, and the thing they have in common is that they need support in different areas. So that might be psychiatric care that they need or personal care. They might need help with what we call activities of daily living that a lot of people can do by themselves. Um, so bathing, dressing, making food, etc. So um, in my line of work, specifically, it's people with intellectual disabilities or other developmental disabilities. Usually from his experience, homes typically have a pretty small number of residents. It's usually between one to four. It's pretty rare that you have one person in a group home, but it does happen. I support a couple people who are the only individuals in their home right now, but usually a provider wants to have it full. So if it's a four bedroom home, there will be four people, three bedroom home, three people, etc. There are a couple of inherent weaknesses in the group home infrastructure, things that I wouldn't have known about without talking to him. First and foremost, it's a business, not a charity. Also, the accountability rests on people who are most vulnerable to exploitation and least capable of expressing their needs. And then also the most direct care comes from highly untrained, underpaid staff who have very little skin in the game. We discussed each of these in detail. The issue about the vulnerability of the people living in group homes is what we discussed first. So it's usually people with higher needs. So they are people who cannot live independently. Um, they might have mental health needs uh, that make it difficult to live independently. They might be elderly um, or they'll be people with developmental disabilities. Some of the people I support are even people who have a disability and were in foster care for a long time and they might not have any family, so they end up in um, a group home because they aged out of foster care. Generally, people who end up in group homes do not have friends or family who are willing or able to host them. So that can be financially, their family doesn't have the capacity or medically based on their needs, the family is just not equipped to care for them. And in this situation, group homes prevent them from being unhoused or having improper care, which is huge. On the flip side, because they don't have a lot of natural supports, which is what we call, you know, the family, friends, and um, the natural skills to take care of themselves, the things that are kind of built in that we usually use to make ourselves independent, um, they have less of the natural supports. So there are fewer people who are focused on their specific needs that are, you know, in their life independently from profit. You have staff coordinators there who they are trying to help but they can only do so much because they're supporting other people so if i'm caring for 30 people i can only notice so much in one individual right so sometimes we have dozens of other people we're taking care of and it's very easy to miss things and it'd be very easy to for abuse or neglect to go unnoticed the second issue he talked about was that group homes are businesses not charities you might not realize this, but the average state pays an immense amount of money to a group home for each resident that the home takes care of. And the dollar amount per person goes up based on the level of care needed by the resident. I would say 200000 is, I would say, a higher estimate, but it definitely depends on the person's needs as well. Because if they have higher needs, then they will have one-to-one -one hours, which means they get um, individual staff to take them out or to wash them in the home, depending on what they need. And that means that the provider will get a lot more money. Since a provider with more residents in its homes makes more money, the system is set up a lot like a business. 
It sounds like capitalism because we are in capitalism and you cannot escape it. This is not, when we say nonprofit, it doesn't mean that they don't receive profit. It means that they get, they're like, a, they get a little bit of a break on their taxes. Like they are still receiving money like a business and trying to make money like a business. In practice, it operates so much like a business. You have advertisements that get sent out. You have established relationships with providers. There's also an incentive for the provider to push for the highest possible level of care since more care for a patient means more money for the business. And because of the funding and the way the funding works, the provider is incentivized to paint individuals as having more needs and justifying more services, therefore receiving more funding. So they receive more funding for those with one-to-one -one needs or awake overnight hours. I can tell some stories where this exact situation happened, not with psychiatrists specifically, but where a provider was pushing for a higher level of care than what's needed. And it all depends on who's willing to speak up and say it's unnecessary. Sometimes it's it could be something that, you know, could go either way. So if someone needs one-to-one -one support, but not desperately, but it could be helpful, then, you know, you might let that slide. But there have been situations where um, a provider that I was trying to refer someone to for a group home. We had a meeting, we sat down, we talked about his needs, and they sent me the plan with all the billing documents, which I meant to review, and I reviewed it, and I saw there were awake overnight hours. And knowing this person that I was referring very well, uh, because he practically called me every day and told me exactly what he wanted, I knew that he didn't need awake overnight hours. So I I looked back at our meeting notes that I took. I saw that it wasn't mentioned, as I suspect. I called up his sister. I called up his niece. I said, hey, has he ever needed support overnight in the last 10, 20 years? And they said, no, absolutely not. Why would he need that? And I said, okay, just checking. That's what I thought. You know, the assessments go back to what a doctor says or what a psychiatrist says. Um, so for people with higher needs, they'll have a nursing plan that justifies one-to-one -one support. And so if someone's writing the nursing plan and, and doing an assessment, they could absolutely lie on that and say that they needed more support than they actually do. And of course, there's also an incentive for providers to cover up or hide any issues that occur, since decertification of a home would mean a huge loss of revenue. Sadly, the reality of the field of working with people with disabilities is if they're nonverbal, they can't say it for themselves. They can't say something's going on. So it's definitely, you know, realistic for abuse to occur, to be covered up, for staff to be fired, and for no one to notice. Because, you know, I see staff turnover in the care team all the time. I see turnover of the people who are giving the direct care all the time, and then of house managers all the time. And of course, it makes you wonder why they were fired, because it's not like a report is going out to the agencies saying, oh, hey, this provider hired somebody who abused people in the home. That's not how it works. You know, this information isn't always made public. And especially if the provider is able to cover it up um, just by firing someone or cover it up just by not saying anything because no one else will speak up. So it's, it's, there's definitely incentive because if they if they don't say anything, and if they know no one else will say anything, then they continue to receive the tens of thousands of dollars for these people's care. None of this is hypothetical either. Elliot has seen firsthand how these monetary incentives influence a group home's operations. One example of that is what we talked about, where I had to advocate for someone to not get awake overnight, even though the provider was insistent on it. Sometimes it can take many, many phone calls and emails and even getting my supervisor involved to get a provider to understand that I see them and I see that they're doing a money graph and they're adding unnecessary services that this person doesn't need. But you really have to call them out on that. Otherwise, people can definitely be taken advantage of. We actually have a saying in my company specifically, um, when providers are acting suspicious, um, we say it's always the money. Okay, so aside from this, from the vulnerability of the average group home resident and the business aspect, there's a third problem with the group home system. And that's about the typical employee that's responsible for keeping a home running. They would be, I don't want to say uncertified because usually there's, you know, CPR training mandated and certain developmental disabilities trainings mandated. But for the most part, they are your, you know, average Joe. They are working a job that is not paying them very much and they're getting paid to um, sit in the house or 
clean dishes and kind of just keep an eye on um, people for a while. So, you know, it's not a very specialized position and it's not a very highly trained position. Um, if you've heard of, you know, personal care attendants, um, it's very similar to that type of job where you're just monitoring people who have higher needs. Elliot isn't talking about doctors or caseworkers here. Instead, he's describing the people that spend the most time in the home and keep an eye on the residents. These people typically are not only undertrained, but also underpaid. One area of concern for me is that the direct support providers are frequently very underpaid. Um, they're working absurd hours, sometimes overnight. Sometimes they even have strange methods of payment, like they might be receiving a 1099 instead of a w-2 or they might be living in the home which is another strange situation and then at the same time the owner of the nonprofit is receiving hundreds of thousands from dda a year and gets to decide how they're budgeting that and again this issue isn't hypothetical either so i'm familiar with a situation in which the um staff for this home lived in the home in the group home and she supported several sweet guys with intellectual disabilities in a group home. Um, for whatever reason, her boyfriend needed a place to live and ended up living with her. Obviously, this is completely not standard, uh, very not kosher, very illegal. <laughs> and it was, it was on the DL. Um, even the upper management and that provider did not know that the boyfriend was living with her, which just goes to show you how little oversight there is even in some of the bigger providers who have multiple group homes. I was curious about state oversight and whether the state's regulations and monitoring and auditing is a reliable protectant. In Elliot's experience. So typically, if there's a problem, the problem solvers are going to be people in the group home um, or people in other services that they're in. So that includes um, behavior support services or the day programs that they go to because if there's a problem at the group home you know those things usually come up in the other services that they're in as well and then um, everyone will come together as a team if there's a problem and discuss how they can um, problem solve so yes usually it's all providers and uh, maybe one family member if they have a guardian then there will be a guardian to kind of work through the problems that come up After nearly two hours, I thanked Elliot, turned off all my recording equipment, and hung up the phone. All I could think about was, what went on in the group homes run by the McKintyre-Lockman-Weiss family? This is all circumstantial, but let's put some of the pieces together, because I've given you a lot of information. The group home system precariously rests on the integrity and competence of the people running the home. That includes many parties who must all act in congruence. The doctors, the staff of the home, and the staff that runs the company that operates the home. The family could have started living at the Forest Compound in Hayden in 2005. Anita's Homes was presumably operating by 2004. It had two doctors that were already in trouble with the law for committing alleged billing fraud in 2003, as well as supposed negligence of their patients. And of course, there were a lot of other allegations, which could be condensed down to treating their patients as paychecks, not people. And one of these two doctors finished probation for what was probably a sex for drug scenario in 2007. In 2008, before he surrendered his license permanently, for another sexual incident, he was working as a doctor in the three homes, and he had been for many years. His boss at the homes was his sister-in-law, Anita, and the other doctor he practiced with was his wife, who happened to have a different last name, so on paper the family connection wasn't clear. I'll tell you how all of this looks to me. It looks like Charles and Marilyn wised up. They, with Anita's help, realized that they could keep practicing medicine without needing anyone to hire them after this big lawsuit. They could do this through the proxy of working for a company which Anita created and ran. That way, their past legal troubles wouldn't impact their income. It seems awfully strange that Anita founded the company in 2004, directly after the lawsuit wrapped up in 2003. Now, I can't tell you with certainty that this is why Anita's Homes was founded. I hope it isn't. I hope that what Tammy and Paulette said about how Charles and Marilyn generally cared about their patients is true. But looking at the timeline and the facts does not fill me with optimism. From my own research, it seems like Anita's homes shut down sometime around 2013 or 2014. Initially, I wasn't sure why. The family managed to keep their online footprint fairly small. I did some scans of local papers looking for stories about Anita's homes, but I didn't turn up anything. 
So I decided to submit a public records request with the Alabama Department of Mental Health. I requested any records available which pertain to the day-to-day operations of Anita's Homes and any documentation regarding the closure of the homes the company operated. Weeks passed, and I didn't hear anything back. Then an email came through, informing me that my request was denied since I had listed an address in Florida as my residence. Apparently, you can only make requests to the Department of Alabama if you're an Alabama resident. So I resubmitted using my aunt's address this time. A few more weeks passed, and then another email showed up in my inbox from Melissa, the public affairs officer of the department. It was a 30-page PDF. I started reading. The first 15 or so pages were ordinary, uneventful. Correspondence from the state of Alabama confirming that site visits had taken place at the facilities operated by Anita's Homes. None of these were noteworthy aside from the fact that they said the services provided were satisfactory. These site visits ranged from 2004, right after the homes were first founded, to 2007. And then there was the Rita Tippins incident. Rita was the executive director of Anita's Homes. Her name was all over the paperwork I found at the compound. And on February 21st, 2007, Anita sent the state an email about Rita, accusing her of embezzling $18,000 from Anita's homes before she suddenly resigned because she could, quote, not continue to work at Anita's homes and do what she needed to do. What Rita did next will shock you. She opened up her own company, Guidance Group Home Incorporated, which quickly opened the doors on a new group home facility. And she convinced three residents of Anita's homes to leave and move into Rita's new facility According to Anita, there was monetary coercion involved in this. Anita noted that these three residents were paid $800, $500, and $500, respectively, shortly before they agreed to swap from Anita to Rita. I want to remind you that these three people had intellectual disabilities to such an extent that they required 24-7 residential care. It sounds like these three people became pawns in a feud between Rita and Anita. And all I can do now is hope that they were getting the care they deserve. Do you remember Elliot mentioning that the group home system is barely holding on because of the coercive influence of capitalism on the industry? Here was yet more evidence of just how true that was. Anyway, I really hoped that this would be the only negative thing I'd find in this public records request. This incident with Rita wasn't necessarily Nita's fault and sounded like a bad employee doing bad things. But then I found a document from the Department of Mental Health's commissioner sent to Anita in 2010. And suddenly, I had all the evidence I needed that all had not been and was not well for the men and women in the care of Anita's group homes. The commissioner outlined that Anita's homes as a company was deficient in a number of areas. The management of client funds, that clients had been abused and neglected in the home, that they'd been mistreated, exploited, and that they'd not received adequate health services. Things were so very bad that the commissioner's intent outlined in the file was to decertify Anita's homes, meaning all the company's homes would be shut down. I was a little confused by this because, like I told you before, it seemed like Anita's Homes operated until at least 2007. I can't fathom how the state allowed the company to continue operating for even a day longer after the state was aware that abuse, neglect, inadequate health care, and financial exploitation was all taking place. I want to pause for a moment and tell you what I was thinking and feeling as I processed through these documents. I went into it optimistically. I hoped, like I've said before, that Anita's Homes had run a tight ship that the especially vulnerable, mentally ill, or intellectually disabled people in the care of Anita and Charles and Marilyn were in good hands. I hoped that that lawsuit against Charles and Marilyn and the eventual surrender of Charles's license did not mean that Anita's homes was just as flawed as its three leaders seemed to be. As I continued reading, first with the Rita Tippins incident, and then with the report from the commissioner, I felt sick to my stomach. My hands started shaking. My head started hurting. And then I got to the final page of the public records request. I read it twice, and I could hardly believe it. I closed my laptop and walked out on my Aunt Connie's deck. There were green walnuts all over the wooden boards. I cracked open a Sprite Zero, hoping it would help settle me down. I remember trying to sit down in a blue plastic lawn chair and ending up on the ground because my mind was so fixated on what was on that last page. It said that on May 5th, 2011, Anita's Holmes was decertified because Charles McIntyre had been in continual employment by the corporation, even though he no longer had a medical license. The document further indicated that Charles had been working as a doctor for Anita's homes ever since he'd lost his license. This means that after Charles permanently surrendered his license in 2008 for his second sexual misconduct incident, he then worked as a doctor for Anita's homes for an additional three years before the state of Alabama did anything about it. 
I didn't know what to make of this. I still don't know, as I write this months and months later. How could this possibly have happened? How could a doctor with two counts of sexual misconduct on his record be allowed to continue working as a doctor without a license for mentally ill or intellectually challenged patients? Was this just gross negligence from the state? Did the Department of Mental Health fail to protect the men and women it exists to serve? I thought back to something Wilson, general counsel, said in our interview. So for Alabama, you know, that's I mentioned the National Practitioner Data Bank earlier. We, we report everything that we do in that regard. So that is a database that's accessible by, you know, state medical boards, credentialers, insurance providers. So that information is produced by us to the, the data bank. And then the Federation of State Medical Boards also has a physician disciplinary center, PDC. We upload, you know, our actions to both of those databases. Someone should have known that Charles was still practicing medicine for his sister-in-law's company for three years after he permanently lost his license. It shouldn't have taken the state three years to catch on. I can say that with certainty. But there's another side to this too, something else that Wilson said. Some of these guys who were, you know, they're just generally fraudsters. They lose their license. Well, they're not going to stop, you know, doing bad stuff. And I think one thing that, you know, some place where I've been, we've been trying to find ways to deal with that is what do you do after they leave the medical profession? but you know they're going to engage in misconduct. Maybe this happened because of holes in the system, not because of a failure on the part of any one person. I can't say. All I can say is that I keep thinking about those women who were already vulnerable to exploitation and how they were in the care of a doctor that had already lost his license for exploiting women and how his only real accountability was his wife who'd stuck by him through his last two sexual incidents and his sister-in-law, who was his boss. I wish I knew the names of those women. I wish I knew their stories. I wish I could tell you that they're okay. But I can't. All I can do is keep pressing on, trying to find out what went on in a forest in Hayden, Alabama, trying to understand why the family left it the way they did. As I get closer to answering that question, there's someone that I need to introduce you to. The truth is, she's been here for a long time, lurking in the shadows. The truth is, she also lived at the compound for a time. The truth is that her story is so strange, so puzzling, so damning, that I haven't been ready to tell you about her until now. But her name is Sahar, and she can't wait any longer. Hey, it's Josh. If you want to support the podcast, there's a couple of things you can do. First, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Second, share it with your friends or anyone who you think might enjoy it. Third, this won't be the last story I tell. If you want to keep up with me and what I work on next after I finish Why They Left, you can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Josh M. Webb. You can also follow the Why They Left podcast on Instagram for exclusive video content about the investigation of this story. Thanks, and I'll see you soon.